It's around you. That's page 827. Matthew 22. We're looking at the first section in Matthew 22 as we continue to work our way through a first century biography written by, traditionally speaking, Matthew, one of the eyewitnesses to Jesus. And we are in a section that is in the final week of Jesus' life. There's 28 total chapters, and time slows down in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Time slows down because these events, these moments, are of central significance to understanding the life of Jesus. If you were to read the biography of Alexander Hamilton like I did a couple years ago, you'll probably get a chapter or two of a 700, 800-page book on Alexander Hamilton's life. If the equivalent was to be done with the life of Jesus, about half the book would be about the last week of Jesus' life, not just a chapter or two. Three, four hundred pages would have been written about Jesus if it was the equivalent of a biography like that. So the gospel writers move slowly through these days. It's now the second day of the week. Jesus has already ridden in on a donkey to Jerusalem. That's chapter 21. He's already cleansed the temple, at least for a moment, as a prophetic sign of judgment to tell the people of Israel that are now overseeing the temple God is not pleased. Judgment is coming. And so he curses a fig tree as a symbol of that judgment shortly after. The next morning, that's the day we're at right now, he's questioned by a group of these leaders, priests and elders. If you look down at 21-23, he enters the temple again on that second day, and they're asking a question, what in the world are you doing? Who do you think you are? By what authority have you done and said these things? Sounds like you think you're calling the shots here. We're calling the shots. And so there's an exchange, and we're at the tail end of that exchange with this group of leaders. There's more to come, as we will find out in the coming weeks as we continue working our way through this text. This is the third of three stories that Jesus says in response to that question, who do you think you are by flipping over these tables and acting as if you own this place? And so he tells the story of two sons. That's in Matthew 21, starting in 28. And he tells a story of a master of a vineyard. And then at the end of that story, look at the last few verses. The chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, and they perceived that he was speaking about them. And they were seeking to arrest him, and they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jesus was speaking very prophetically, and he continues. And the first words you see in Matthew 22, verse 1 are, and again, and an There's a word missing, but it's, and he answered them again. 
That's really what's in the text in Matthew 22, verse 1. It could just be a transitional phrase. That's one way, and that's why it's probably left out in your Bible. I think, though, that he's saying, and in response to your wondering as to whether I'm talking about you or not, let me give you a third story. And that's where we find ourselves today. It's a perplexing story. It's similar to what you heard earlier in the service in Luke 14 when Becca came up here and read to us a story about a great banquet. You're going to see a lot of similarities, but you're going to see a lot of differences. And that's why I told Becca to say, hey, look, it seems like Jesus probably told this story on several different occasions at different times, and he shifts it depending on his audience. We know who his audience is here. Chief priests, head honchos, religious elite. Think if you're a Catholic, a pope. And having a confrontation with the Pope and saying, no, I'm the Pope. How's that going to go down? You've just self-appointed yourself as the Pope? The current Pope's not going to take a liking to that. So he might ask, by what authority do you think you're the Pope? This is the scene of what's going on right now. Everything that Jesus has been doing and saying is understood in that context. And so he gives this third and final story To help make the point clear again, he is judging and he is warning the very people he's talking to. All of this information I'm giving to you right now is of central importance so you don't read this strange story and start running wild with applications for your individual Christian life and wondering what this or this or that is. You will do damage to your soul and to other people if you misuse the Bible that way. Read the stories that came before. Read the context. Realize that he's not talking to the church in this context. It applies to us. It always does. But he's talking to chief priests and scribes. And it's a hard word. It's a serious word. It's a sobering, warning, judgment word. So if so far in the service you felt like, we're missing some happy clappy. Phil's not bringing it in the sermon. At least not not yet. So let me tell you a story to help make sense of this story. And then we're just going to work through the story one verse or two at a time because I think this is the sort of story where I don't want to read it first because if you've never heard it before, I want you to feel kind of the tension. And then also at each point, I want us to kind of pause and think, what if the story just ended there? And then reflect on that. And then notice it doesn't end there and then keep seeing how it unfolds. So, here's, here's the first everyday kind of story that happens every year, three, four times a year. Uh, some team wins a championship, a sports team, professional sports team. Sorry, Cubs fans, Washington Nationals won the World Series. I'm from the D.C. area. I'm not a huge baseball guy, but I did cheer on the Washington Nationals when they won triumphantly in Game 7. We were excited. It was cool. And um, if you know anything about our culture with our obsession with sports and honoring people who can hit a baseball or put a ball in a hoop and think that these people some, somehow be high and mighty in our society, this is what we do. So we want to honor them and their great athletic prowess. And so the highest position of all in our country invites them to the White House. The President of the United States offers an invitation to the team, the whole team, to come be with him, come to the White House. 
And this has been going on from time to time, but every year, no matter what team, even if it's your team, I don't remember who did this with the Cubs or not, but my guess is depending on who the president is or what political party you stand. But we've been hearing a lot of this lately with our current president. Many people have decided to decline. For example, Nationals closing pitcher Sean Doolittle. When he comes out to the mound, all of the fans yell, do, for, for Doolittle. Um, Sean Doolittle declined to go to the White House as the rest of the team went to be honored for their achievement. There's a long series of quotes that he gives because it is not just a, oh, no, thank you, I've got other plans. This is political. He's making a statement. And so he was quoted saying this, people say that you should go to the White House because it respects the office of the president. Sean Doolittle told the Washington Post, and I think over the course of his time in office, President Trump has done a lot of things that maybe don't reserve, deserve that respect. You see, you see like, you could go on and read more quotes, but every time this happens, every year, whether it's been Barack Obama or, or Barack Obama, George Bush, there are people that don't like the current president, and so they decline the invitation. Some of them say words about why, but many of them just go on silently, no thank you. I think that's a good modern example of what's going to happen in our text. If you're not understanding the political ramifications of Jesus' story, it feels like Sean Doolittle. He's making a statement. And so when you read this story, you need to realize we're talking about a king. We're talking about the king's invitation, the highest seat of honor in office. And you're being invited, and that's something that you don't get that kind of invitation. How many of you have been invited to the, the White House? Show of hands? We got one over there. All right. Another one back there. Great. So you see what I mean? My guess is that even if you didn't like the current president, or maybe you love him, all of you would feel a sense of, whoa, it's not a letter I get every day. You might clear the schedule. You might think, you know, I'd like to see the White House. All expense paid? Be a banquet on his dollar? Yeah, that sounds good. Let's dive into our text. Matthew 22, verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. The big idea of this text, and it'll be behind me on the screen the rest of the time, so you can kind of get your bearings, is that the first verse is explaining that there's a parable Jesus is telling, and it's a parable about an invitation from a king to his kingdom, to certain people in that kingdom, and it is for his son, who is going to be the future king, right? If you're the son of the king, when the king dies, then you become the new king. You're the prince. 
So if you drop down your eyes to verse 14, you're going to notice the explanation of this whole story. And it says, for many are called, but few are chosen. So before we get too lost, let me just help you understand that this whole story and each part of it is helping to communicate the point that all those who gladly respond to God's kingdom call, you are his chosen people. If you gladly respond to God's kingdom call, then you know you're one of his chosen elect people. There are many who are called, but there will be few that are in the chosen category. So in verse 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus is speaking another parable. You should download into your mind a whole bunch of information. Matthew 13, we were already told parables are words of judgment. They're not to be helpful stories to make a, a truth that's easy to understand. He, he's being prophetically cryptic. He is being like a riddler telling a story that you've got to work to figure out. So when you see parable there, don't think, oh, Jesus is trying to tell a nice, cute story to help us understand because we're so dense. No, no, he is prophetically judging them. He'd speak clearly to their face, but he already did that. Read chapter 21. Let's talk face to face. Who's John the Baptist? Um, well, I don't want to answer that. I don't know, even though I do know. Then I'll talk in riddle code now. That's what's happening here. So this parable is about the kingdom of heaven, what it's like for the reign and rule of God. And we first, just before you move on to the story, realize Jesus is saying the kingdom is like a king who throws a great wedding feast for his son. Does it sound good so far? You like that kind of kingdom? He's he's wealthy. He's throwing a lavish banquet, as we'll find out soon. That's what the kingdom's like. A God who calls a people, sends out an invitation, and the invitation isn't for judgment. The invitation is for a feast. How many of you need to start here with reorienting your mind about what you think about when you think about God? God first is a great, awesome king. He's rich and wealthy, and he shares it by inviting people to join his feast. Is that down? Is that, is that a solid foundation in your understanding of God? You will not get very far in your understanding of the Bible if you don't have that first. He is calling a people. He is sharing, and he is going to lavishly pour out his love upon them. That's what God is like. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. That's what heaven coming to earth is like. Verse 3. If the story ended there, it'd be a good story. Oh, wow, there's a feast. Done. Over. Verse 3. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So, the important detail that you really need to notice here is that he is calling The people who were what? Notice the language very carefully. This is both obvious in English, it's obvious in the original language in Greek, and it's obvious if you knew Jewish Middle Eastern customs and practices. If you're going to throw a really, really big party, you know this too. This is obvious in our day. What are you going to do? 
send out an invitation with an RSVP. Right? That's what's, that's what's happening. The invitation went out first. This is actually the second call. There was an original call because notice he says, the servants went to go to those who were already invited. Do you see that? By the way, every time you see in your English Bible, invited or call, it's the same, it's the same word in the original language, kaleo, to call or to invite. So there was a call. There's a, there's a feast, and he's called a feast, and he's thrown out his email e-invite, and he has got his RSVPs, and we know who wants to come. And so then he sends out his servants to tell them, we're ready. The feast is ready. It's time. The food is ready. It's time to now come. So that's why it's, he's sending the servants to those who are RSVP'd, yes, the invited. But now, they're rejecting. So you've got a God calling a people. Then you have an initial acceptance to some degree, but now you have a rejection. And all of this is mapping over Jesus' very pregnant words that have full, rich meaning of the whole story of the whole Old Testament. So if you're wondering, what, what's the riddle here? The answer is the Old Testament. The servants are the prophets of God. The servants are those that came to the called. Who's the called one? Do you know who's the first called one in the Bible? Abraham. Genesis chapter 12. Abraham was called to leave his family and join a feast. He was called to become a new nation that God would bless and, and prosper and help them amongst all the other nations be the nation that dwells with God's presence like a feast. And there's an initial acceptance to that call. And the people of Israel receive the call. And then as time goes on, there's a rejection to this call. So what does God do in verse 4? What would you do? What would you do if you threw a huge party with all of the best of the best that you could offer? Best food, best dining, best location, and people said, yes, we'll come. And then later decided, yeah, I don't want to come anymore. What would you do? This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, behold. That's, that's the original word. Behold. See. Stop. I want you to consider what you're giving up on. I'm coming to you again I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. What's the kingdom like, guys? A king who is not only generous, but patient and persistent and pursues and wants his people. What does God do in the Old Testament after his people stiff arm the call. He comes back again. He sends more prophets, more servants. This God does not take no for an answer. He says, I'm coming back. Friends, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
This is what our God is like. This is what the God who is, is like. Isn't this good news? Isn't it good to know that you probably are not too different and stiff-arm God at times? He's calling, he's begging, he's leading, he's, he's doing things in your life and orchestrating things. You're like, whoa, that wasn't a coincidence. And you're like, mm, no, it was a coincidence. And then he does it again. And then he puts people into your life. And you're just wondering, why? Why does God keep coming? Because he loves. See the love of God in this story. See the story of Israel unfolding in every verse. And notice that Jesus is retelling that story and saying, God pleads. He calls the called. He begs of them, come, see the feast. Oh, if you just knew the feast, you would come. Behold the feast, he says. Are you doing that, friends? Are you beholding the feast? Does your mind wander in your imagination day after day about the feast? Or do you wander about the starvation famine that we have for us here on this earth? What are you more consumed with? Jesus wants the prophets to help point people's attention to the feast. What love, what kindness, what graciousness. What if we paused here? What if that was it? What was the end of the story? Oh, they came happily ever after. End of story. That'd be great. But we know this is not how the story of Israel ended. This is not how the story of Israel went. This is not the story of the Bible. It did not just end with, oh, we repented. We, we got our act together. And now all things are good. Verse 5 and 6. But they paid no attention. They paid no attention to God's repeated pleading calls. They went off. One went to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. If this sounds familiar to last week's story, or if you just read up the previous paragraphs in chapter 21, where the master of the vineyard sends his servants and then they beat them and then kill them. That's because Jesus is telling the same story again. <laughs> like, it's, it's supposed to sound similar. And so this is one of those similarities. The servants in that story and the servants in this story are God's prophets. And what did the people of Israel do in the Old Testament when they came and confronted Israel and said, God wants you to come to the feast. He called you. And you initially accepted it, but now you're rejecting the call. They killed them. They rejected them. They treated them shamefully. They disregarded God's word and his servants. You could, you could look at it two different ways. And if you want to just think about your own life and say, all right, so how, how might this apply to my stiff arm rejection and rebellion toward God? Well, some of you in this room might be indifferent. I got other things. I got business to take care of. I've got family members to attend to. Or maybe you're hostile. Or you're somewhere on that spectrum. Notice that both of these are ultimately rejection of the king. It's a political statement. 
and to not just reject the king. I mean, imagine Sean Doolittle doesn't just say, I'm not going to the White House, but he takes the mail post office carrier who gets the letter to him in the mail and kills him. I hate this letter so much, I'm going to kill the servant that sent it. I mean, that's a political statement. And that's the kind of story Jesus is telling. It's that kind of political statement. It's, it's not, it's treason. It's straight treason against the high king. Rebellion of utter disgust of everything about his kingdom. And this gives us the picture in the window of the human condition as it's unfolded in the nation of Israel. As we look at them and we see them, we see, I'm not too different. I'm indifferent a lot. And if there was one spectrum or another that many of the folks that are sitting around in this room today would fall on, it would be the first category, wouldn't it? Do a lot of you think, yeah, a lot of times when God is wooing and calling me to be obedient, I get real angry at him and hostile. I mean, that's not been my experience with many of you. You seem very pleasant and nice. You know what most of you are, though? Busy. Worried about other things. In a hurry. And by your busyness, you may actually be rejecting the king. Have you thought about that? That you're actually pursuing your own kingdom pursuits rather than his? Or do you just assume, assume so well that, no, my work is all kingdom work. All of it, Pastor Phil. Everything that I'm busy with, it's kingdom work. I would not make that assumption. I think each and every one of us, myself included, all of your elders, deacons, deaconesses, church members, visitors, all of us should take this word to heart and examine ourselves to see, am I ruthlessly in a hurry and running around missing out on the king's feast? You'll know if you are because you'll see the fruit. Are you depressed? Are you anxious? Are you worried? Is life hard right now inside? Is there a discontentment? Is there a lack of peace, joy? What would it look like for you to be so consumed with the feast and the banquet that you could live in the worst possible circumstances in this life right now, but with utter joy and contentment and peace. You'll know. Those things that you're feeling or experiencing should be like the dashboard indicators in your car when it's like, time to get gasoline, time for an oil change, something's not right in here, you keep running this way, you're gonna conk out. How many of you have ended up on the side of the road conked out because you know you weren't paying attention to those warning signs on the dashboard and you realized this is not the way of the kingdom? How many of us, we hear the call because we finally wake up and realize I've been pursuing the wrong kingdom, my kingdom? There's a story about World War II concentration camp sort of 
setting. Two different fences separating two different groups of people. And within them, there were two guys that were acting as like priests or um, pastors for their group of people. And the Germans there knew German, but they spoke a language. I forget what the language was, but they were able to speak a language uh, to each other across the fence, and they were able to communicate without the guards knowing what they were talking about. And one of the pastor-priest guys goes over and talks to the other guy, and he says, hey, by the way, uh, we have uh, a radio transmitter, and they don't know about it yet. They've not found it. And so we're getting updates on how the war's going. And so a couple days later, he comes back and he tells them, the war's over. The Germans have lost. There's good news. We're going to be set free. The guards don't know. Could, could you imagine what your experience would be like if you were living in a concentration camp and you knew, you knew it's over. Like it's just a matter of time before we're set free. Would you be complaining about the food or the conditions or the, the mistreatment from the prisoners or the guards as a prisoner? The way the story goes, this, this I didn't make up, is a, is a true story. They were happy in jail, in prison. They were happy about their food in a way that they never were before. They were happy about their conditions in a way they never were before. They had hope. They had gospel. They had good news. A victory had been won on their behalf that was going to set them free. And all the guards and prisoner, or all the, all the prisoner guards did not know about it yet. They didn't know. And so they're just wondering, what's up with these people? They're very different now. That, that, that should be what describes Christians. You, you'll know by the fruit. Are you living as if there's a feast? Behold the feast. He's invited you to a feast. Verse 7. What will the king do? This is one of the twists and turns of the story. What, 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 what's God going to do? The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers. And he burned their city. This is the part of the Bible that if you don't like the Bible in its fullness, you skip over. You know? This is the part that you do a teaching series on just a basic topic. This passage doesn't come up. But if you work through texts of Scripture and you just keep working through the Gospel of Matthew, you're just going to come to Bible verses like Matthew 22, verse 7. And it's going to tell you very plainly that the God of the Bible gets angry. And we don't have to apologize for that. I don't have to defend it. I don't need to feel like that's a bad thing. I should tell you, if your heart's right in the right place, you should rejoice that he gets angry at injustice. He gets angry at people who do violence. He gets angry at murderers. And he will judge them. This is what our God is like. And that's what the kingdom is like. And when we're overseeing this whole story as laying over the, the story of Israel, this moment right here in verse 7 is the destruction 
of the temple by the Babylonians. The troops are the Babylonian army that God sends, that Habakkuk is like, what in the world? How are these your troops and agents of destruction? And burns the city down. It happened. So the king was angry. The God of the Bible gets angry against sin and evil and injustice. You don't want a God who is so lovey-dovey soft that he's just so nice that he does not deal with evil and wickedness. You don't want that God. That will never heal the problems in the earth. Never. So let's be thankful and rejoice that Jesus makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who is patiently, persistently pursuing, giving every chance possible. But when they kill your servants, you know, that, that crossed a line. And he, he destroyed them. He burned their city. He judged them. He exiled them. So what if the story ended there? That would be depressing. There would be no hope for you and me. But look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, Well, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy, so go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. God's mercy and grace calls a new covenant people. This is old covenant people of Israel. They did not respond to the call. They were exiled And they've never been fully restored. So God sends his son Jesus into the world as his last and final servant prophet. And he says, I'm going to call a new people, good and bad. Or if you wanted to use this language, because this is easily laying over with the Luke 14 passage. Jew and Gentile. Prostitutes and tax collectors from our last story a week ago. The most religious or the most irreligious. The call goes to the whole world. All nations are going to receive this call because he is making a new people. Not as if he's starting over, but as a continuation of his original banquet feast. We could all be invited now. All of you in this room, you're invited because of Jesus telling this story. The kingdom of heaven is an invitation to all. Every age, every ethnicity, every gender identity, everything you could classify with whatever way you would want to classify somebody and think that I'm different or divided from, no, the gospel is for all. All. And all means all here. Good and bad. None of you are so bad that you could not come. God's mercy and grace calls a new people, and they gladly receive the call. They come. Did you see that in the text? They, they don't give him the stiff arm. They come. They, they want to be there. 
And it says, actually, the word guest is they're reclining as at a table and eating a meal. They're at the king's table. They're feasting. They're enjoying the banquet. What a beautiful picture of our mission as a church. Our mission is to continue the call to every tribe, tongue, and language. There should be nobody, nobody that is ever overlooked. There's nobody that is seen as second class or worse off. No one in your prayers, no one in your evangelism, nobody in the way you do your, do your serving and giving and, and loving the world, no nation, no people group. The church of Jesus Christ should care, radically care about all And so does it, does it at all, does it all burden your heart to know that there are people that haven't even heard of the invitation yet? Does that do anything for you to think, well, that's sad. We're here at church today because we've heard the invitation and we've received the invitation, but there are people who haven't even heard the invitation yet. They don't even know about the, the king. They don't know about the banquet. They've not beheld the offer of the banquet. Why, why were you invited? Why did God decide in his sovereign providence to bring into your life an invitation? Did you control that? Did you control the family you were born into? The place that you were born in? If you were born in Yemen and there's hardly any Christians there, do you think that you would be a Christian right now? Chances are no. So friends, consider the overwhelming gratitude if you're sitting at the feast today when the bread and the cup comes around, remember those who aren't. And pray for them every day. And may we as a church collectively participate in the mission to spread the call to all. That has to be always on the forefront of our minds and our prayers. If you'd like to come up, 10 o'clock every Sunday, most of the time except on the fifth Sunday, but most Sundays, 10 o'clock, we have a prayer gathering sharing time and one of the main things we do at that time is to put the mission of the church at the forefront of our minds. Praying for and helping be a part of advancing the cause of the invitation and the call. So in the month of February, we're going to hear from two supported workers that as you give to our church, we take offering, and we give to work around the world so that people can spread the invitation and the call of Jesus here in the States and abroad. One person will be from the Middle East, and one person will be from here in Illinois, and we should care about all. And this would be the best way to end the story. Amen. Close your Bibles. Let's pray. Happily ever after. What a great, glorious kingdom. If you read Luke 14, story, that's where it ends. It's like, wow, it's a good story, Jesus. And this is where Matthew, Jesus in Matthew's gospel takes quite a turn. Look at verse 11. But when the king came to look, the word here should probably be like inspect. Like, this isn't just like, oh, the king's at his banquet, just kind of looking around. He is inspecting, investigating his guests that are reclined. Because that word guest, remember, it's those that are seated at the table eating. When the king comes and inspects all those seated at the table, 
he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man, he was speechless. And so then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a twist, huh? Make sense of that, friends. (laughs) Here's my way of making sense of it. Only those who gladly and joyfully want to be there and love and honor the king will be there. The kingdom of God will be comprised of all those who from the bottom of their heart really love God and love one another. The purity of the kingdom is being explained here. I think this is one of those ways that like, I'm sure we could come up with a variety of ways that we could read into the different elements of this. But take the broader point. The king is inspecting. He is making sure that there is nobody that slipped in unnoticed or shouldn't be there. That's what the whole point, I think, of this little section is. And so here, here's the problem here because the language here is you don't have the right attire on. So, so, so pause for a moment. You're invited to a great feast. You're, ingri- you're invited to the president of the White House. I mean, what are you going to wear? You're going to wear something nice. You're not going to wear your dirty workout pants with, you know, some muddy boots and uh, a stained t-shirt. Like, you're just not going to do that. This is a royal banquet for the king. So, in the Middle Eastern attire, it would have been a white tunic. You would be a nice, white, clean tunic. So, he's obviously not wearing that. And here, here's the problem where you might be like, well, it kind of sounds like. God makes an invitation and says, come. Come to heaven. Come be with me. And then, you've got to clean yourself up. You've got to clean yourself up, and once you're cleaned up, then you can be entered in. And if you're not cleaned up, well, then he's going to kick you out, and you're going to go to hell. What do you think? Like, you could get that from this story. Could, could you do that? Yeah. Couple problems. One, the rest of the Bible. Two, two, um, which, which, hey, maybe, maybe we just need to do more time with this text. Maybe that's what it's really saying. But two, what did I say at the beginning? Does anyone remember? You could do really terrible damage to someone's soul if you take this context and you quickly jump to your individual Christian life. Who's he talking to? These chief priests who are dressed in the most ornate garments. Oh, the twist of irony in Jesus' story. The people that are rightly dressed in the kingdom of God are the people that are from the highways. The actual word there is the crossing of the streets where it's basically like a street corner. Who who are the people that hang out at street corners? In Jesus' banquet, the good and the bad, the filthy, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. But then you've got these high and mighty chief priests that think that they're rightly adorned for the occasion of entering into the most holy place. And he's saying, you you got the wrong garments on. 
He's talking to those guys. And he's telling them that they will be removed. His kingdom will have no place for them. It's an act of judgment. It is an act of warning. And he is telling these chief priests and scribes and leaders, it's going to be hell. Because you have rejected the king with the most hard of hard hearts. The prophets have come again and again and again, and now God himself is standing in your presence, and you're doing it again. You're rejecting him. So, let's clean up for a moment. Maybe an underlying question. We sang earlier in the service, come as you are, come as you are. Oh, come to the altar. Are you tired and hurting and broken within? Are you overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Just come. Just come as you are. There's no hurting that heaven can't heal. We've, we've been rejoicing and declaring. You should just come as you are. Well, should I come as I am or should I get cleaned up first? You should come as you are. And it's not because, and there's people that teach this, and it'd be, it'd be great. It'd be awesome to just like end the sermon there, awesome preaching point, and say, that's because the king provides the new clothing. And, and although I think that's true, I don't think that's what he's saying here. I think what he's saying here is that the king is going to make sure his kingdom is purif- purified, cleansed. And those who have not really wanted to be there, because put it this way, if, if you get invited to an event like that and you show up with the dirty stained t-shirt and the muddy work boots and you just basically like, yeah, whatever, like, do you, do you really even want to be there? So essentially, Jesus is painting a picture that here's the banquet feast, and there's a few people that think they belong in, but they really don't. One of these doesn't look like the other. And he's saying, I'm going to make sure I deal with that. And the way he deals with it is by saying they will be dragged out. They will be in utter darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, weeping should be obvious. It's crying. It's crying. Gnashing of teeth, maybe not so obvious. All through the scriptures, gnashing of teeth is anger. Listen to Job 16.9. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. Lamentations 2.16. All of your enemies are railing against you. They hiss. They gnash their teeth. They cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have seen it. Acts 7, 54, at the stoning of Stephen. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. There will be utter darkness of sorrow and utter darkness of anger. And it is because they have rejected God. And it's not because they want to be in heaven. Oh, I love the C.S. Lewis quote about hell. Hell has locked gates, but the lock is on the inside of the door. Meaning, you're angry and you're upset, but you want nothing to do with going out that door. You could. The invitation is open. The people that are not there are those that don't want to be there. So the begrudging, disrespecting people will not exist. The king will make sure of it that none of them will creep in. No shady high priests. Life outside of the kingdom is hell. Utter darkness, weeping and anger. And this is what will be reserved for those who disrespect this king. 
Many are called, but not everyone will respond. Those that do are the chosen elect people of God. Do you ever wonder, how do I know if I'm chosen? You can know right now. He's calling. Do you want to come? He's calling you right now. There's an invitation to feast. We're going to eat the bread and the cup. Are you going to take it? Are you going to take it because it's a ritual, because it's empty and shallow, it's got no significance, or are you going to take it because you know the war is over, the king has won, it's still hell on earth right now, but we know in just a matter of time, this small little cup is going to be a great feast and banquet. Do you believe that? Can you tell? Can you tell by the way you're living your life? Can you tell by your peace, your joy, your contentment? Of any increasing matter, are you seeing any difference that this good news is making? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for the call and the invitation. We praise you, God, that you are merciful, that you are good, that your ways are good, that your kingdom is good. We praise you, God, that you did not leave us as we were running away from you, stiff-arming you. You chased after us. You're doing it now. You do it through your word. You do it through your church. You do it through your people. You do it through the circumstances of our life. You do it through our consciences. God, we thank you that you are not distant. You are not far off. You are not a God who just winds up the earth and lets it go. You are intimately involved. You care. You love. You chase. You pursue. You call. We pray that every one of us here today will receive the call and then give the call, sharing the good news, inviting to the feast. God, make us people who care and are broken and lament the pain and the darkness and the lack of mission engagement. Help us to respond, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.